We are just Christians today. Thanks for tuning into the show. We really appreciate it and hope that you're doing well. All of you are unaffected, at least physically, by this virus that's going around. Hope you, I'm glad you can be with us. Hope you'll take the opportunity not only to listen to the radio show today, which will give you more information about in just a second, but also take a look at our website for the church here and for the radio show. The website is called We Are Just Christians Also. And if you need something to listen to, there are archives of lessons and radio shows and sermons going back for several years on just a whole variety of topics that are on the website, wearejustchristians.com. If you'd like to listen to something uh, while you're at home or in the car, that's a good place to start with that we'd recommend, of course. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, and uh, I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, Mike Schmidt, and with me, as usual, is Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm here this morning, Mike. Good. We're glad you can be here. Gary was a little bit under the weather last week. He's been, uh, like the rest of us, even maybe a little more so, self-isolating because of his health conditions have been kind of poor for the last few months. And so um, he has some of the risk factors. So Gary's staying at home for the most part, as is his wife, because of that. But we're glad he can be out this morning to do the radio show with us. And we're going to give you the information. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. So we invite your participation. We would love to have your participation in the show. You can reach us here on at W. On WPSL at 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. If you'd like to take, give us a call, we'd be glad to hear from you on any particular topic that you have in mind. It doesn't have to be what we're discussing at the moment. We'd be glad for you to change the subject to anything that's on your mind. If you've got something you'd like to bring up from your own Bible study, or maybe you don't even believe in the Bible and you'd still like to talk to us, we'd be glad to hear from you about that. I'm reading some interesting things, Gary, from a guy that's an eight lifelong atheist in the last couple, last week. He's written some articles, Larry Sanger, about possibly coming closer to belief in God, and in particular, ironically enough, Christianity. But we'll talk about that perhaps some other time. But we don't mind if you're not a believer or if you don't go to church. Uh, you don't have to talk about that. So if you can talk about anything that has to do with spiritual things, your own soul, your own difficulties, problems. You want to talk about this uh, pandemic or whatever you want to call it we got going on, epidemic. We'd be glad to talk with you about that, too. And so that's the number, 772-340-1590. If you'd like to reach us by text message, and we welcome that. Sometimes we can res- respond directly to them. Sometimes we can't. But you're, you're welcome to text us not only during the show, uh, but also during the week. And you can reach, we have two text numbers. One's mine, one's Gary's. You can reach Mike at 772-260-6120, 772 772- Two six zero six one two zero, and then you can reach Gary at seven seven two two six zero six two two zero is the text number for Gary. Well, it looks like we have a call. Uh, Jerry, are you there? Uh, good morning, Mike. How are morning, you, Gary? Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Go right ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, last time I called, I asked about Lent and Advent. And I was wondering about Pentecost, uh, not so much the Pentecostal church, but just the term Pentecost. I'd like to listen off air, if that'd be okay, uh, Mike? Sure. Uh, that'd be great, Jerry. Um, Pentecost, and ironically enough, in my sermon this morning, I don't think Jerry obviously didn't know this, but, but uh, uh, my sermon this morning is going to be about Pentecost, unless I change my mind between now and then. I did that a couple weeks ago, but my sermon this morning is going to be about Pentecost, uh, ironically enough, because I'm speaking about the first day of the week and and some of the feasts. You know, the um, the feasts of the Old Testament are all typical or have a 
prophetic typological meaning in the new. And so Passover and the lamb of the Passover and the blood of the Passover lamb uh, is is a type of Jesus Christ and his blood and the fact that God passes over us without condemning us when we have the blood of Christ on us. And you see this, and he was and he was also crucified at the Passover. At the time, the lambs were being crucified or sacrificed in Jerusalem, apparently. Sometime around, close to that time, he, was, he is the Passover lamb. The New Testament makes this point. And the other feasts of the Old Testament are like this also. Now, Christians, just kind of going to get a running start at the answer to your question, Jerry, about the Pentecost. But Pentecost means 50, by the way. It means 50. But uh, there are two great... Christians worship Christ and remember Christ's death and resurrection on the first day of the week. The Jews keep the Sabbath day. That's the seventh day, a day of rest. Christians keep the first day of the week, which is not a Christian Sabbath. That term does not appear in the Bible. The concept of a Christian Sabbath, where we all have to rest on Sunday, is not found in the Bible. Sunday is a day of joy and a day of the celebration and remembrance of the death of Christ. Because, first of all, Christ was raised on the first day of the week. As in John 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene came early on the first day of the week, and she saw that the body had been taken away from the tomb. Romans 1 says that, God, that Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead, from the dead. So this is God's declaration on the first day of the week this, of the same thing he said on the first day of the first week, let there be light. That's what Paul's point in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 is, let there be light. And so the other thing about this is Christ was raised on... The day of first fruits, the day after the Passover, and that year that Christ was born, was also the festival of first fruits, according to Leviticus 23, verse 9, that when they begin to reap the harvest, you'll bring a sheaf of your first fruits to the priest and wave it before the Lord and so forth. And um, this grain offering is one that's been offered up, and you'll count from that day. For yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. So here's, here's the Sabbath day. You count seven Sabbaths. That's 49 days, right? Right. Plus the one, one day, day. That moves it from the Sabbath day to the first, first day, day of, of the week. week. Now you celebrate a feast of first fruits and then later Pentecost. So Christ was, according to the book of Rome, of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits from the dead. He has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruit was, and I may have mentioned this earlier on the show, maybe last week or a couple weeks ago, the idea of first fruits is when the crops first began to get ripe, it showed, got, they were to bring an offering of these crops because it meant that the rest of the crop was coming. It just wasn't ready quite yet. On the edges of the fields, Gary, from what I learned being in farm country for a while, especially at corn, gets more sun and stuff. And so the edge of the field gets ripe first. But the rest of the field in there is getting ripe. It just takes a little longer. And so Christ was the first one raised from the dead never to die again. That's what God says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And the promise of his resurrection then is that we're all going to be raised. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. Just like Christ with a new body, never to die again. So he's the first fruits of the crop that's coming. And so you, you see this whole um, thing. So the typology of these events is... Christ is sacrificed as the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's raised up as the first fruits to God. And the first fruit, uh, the first harvest is an indicator of things yet to come. And so since he is first fruits, he guarantees the greater harvest of all those who will be raised up. And then you have the day of Pentecost. 
you count 50 days from this Sabbath day, count seven Sabbaths plus one day, now you take another grain offering from the time of the first fruits. And Pentecost then is important because Pentecost now represents the full harvest of what they were reaping. You have the first fruits right after the Passover, in this case, in the year of Christ, was crucified. Now you've got Pentecost. Pentecost is Latin, it means penta means fifty. Uh, and so it's the day of it's the heart, feast of fifty days, which is forty nine, seven times seven plus one, always on the first day of the week. And so Pentecost was anticipated by the feast of first fruits because it represents the fulfillment of what was started weeks earlier at the first fruits. So this is the idea of Pentecost. And so Acts two book of Acts, chapter 2, tells us what happened on the day of Pentecost after Christ was crucified and raised from the dead 50 days later. It's not accidental that God chose that day, the day of Pentecost, to, to bring the Holy Spirit on the apostles there in Jerusalem that they would speak in tongues and proclaim the gospel for the first time because it was the first day of the week. So another reason why Christians meet on the first day of the week is because the gospel was first preached on that day to all men, you see. And so that's the Feast of Pentecost. So you have Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And now when the day of Pentecost was had fully come, they, that is the apostles, were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in their own language. It isn't just that they were speaking in different languages. It seems to me, Gary, in this case, the miracle was that they all heard them speak in their own language. language. Even though I guess they could tell they were perhaps speaking Aramaic or Hebrew or something like that, they heard them speak in their own language. Paul they, does say later on that if, if this there was a phenomena something like this that occurred in the churches during that period, and he, yes. said, and he said they should they should interpret if they were having those. Right. But they this was interpreted for them, apparently. Yeah. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are these not all who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language? in which we were born. So this is the amazing thing. In verse 9 of Acts chapter 1, if I can get this to go, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya and adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue at the wondrous, wonderful works of God. So He's pointing out all over the known world of that time, there were Jews there present, even proselytes were there present to hear this speak. Which points out something that we rarely think of Jerusalem as, but it was a, it was a multi-nation city. Yeah, and they had all come there because of the Passover. And, and, many, and many even had not been just, there during the time of Christ's right. crucifixion. They had stayed over to the Feast of Pentecost. And not just for those two feasts, but they probably came for other times. They were too. there other times. Now then... What, ha- what, this, what this represents, when you p- put this together with the, with the Feast of Pentecost, the ingathering or the harvest in the Old Testament, is this represents God's harvesting of the nations or bringing the nations into being harvested. Okay? So the Feast of, of in- First Fruits was Christ's resurrection. Fifty days later was the Feast of Pentecost or ingathering, the harvest. Now you have this being fulfilled in the New Testament when God begins to preach the gospel of Christ's kingdom being uh, being established. And he goes on to say that, that uh, he goes on to talk to these people about that Jesus was attested to you and yet you delivered him up and crucified him by the hand of the Romans. But God raised him up, verse 24 of Acts 2, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible he should be held by it. In verse 29 he says, let me... Speak freely, brethren, to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and he's been mentioning his prophecies, 
And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Uh, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That his son was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of whom we're all witnesses. So he preaches the coming of David's kingdom, one to sit on David's throne. He isn't speaking of a millennial kingdom. He's speaking of the time of the resurrection of Christ. And he says that Christ had prophesied this. David prophesied, I should say. And that God had raised him up. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely, verse 36, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both the Lord and Christ. And they cried out when they heard this. They were pricked in their heart. Men and brethren, what shall we do? So this is the preaching of the gospel. And then Peter said to them, on this Pentecost, this harvesting day, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, I think that's the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words he testified and said to them, be saved from this crooked generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day... About 3,000 souls were added to them. So here is the adding together of the harvest, the gathering of the harvest, adding it together, piling it up, as it were, beginning on this day of 50, the Pentecost. And the result was, and they, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers, and so on. It basically, then it goes on and tells what they did. Yeah, the breaking of bread here is the Lord's Supper. And that's why we keep the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. That's one of the verses that point to this when you put all this together. Well, there's the 1 Corinthians 10 and beginning about verse right. 14, he talks about that. He says, Therefore, my beloved, free from my, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, therefore, through many, are one bread and one body, for, all, for we all partake of that one bread. Right. Now, so he's, he's basically talking about Jesus being the unity part of that and his blood being, I think, as we see in other places, his blood is the reason that we have forgiveness of sins, his sacrifice. Right. Well, we had a text just a minute ago, which I, the point I was going to get to, but I'll... Uh, get John, the, John who texted at the credit, he said that, that this is kind of the reverse of the Tower of Babel. You know, the Tower of Babel uh, God confused and scattered the nations apart when he confused their languages. Now, through the resurrection of Christ, he gives us one new language and brings all men back together. Pentecost is the reversal of the Tower of Babel, where now he says all nations need to come to me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, Jesus said. So now he's gathering all men back to himself. They were gathering together the Tower of Babel to lift up men, to lift up themselves, and to gather themselves and eventually against God. He says, now, though, you're going to gather together all the nations are under Christ in his kingdom, not the kingdom of the world or Nimrod or whoever you might say it was. And so this is the beginning of it. And so Christians speak one language. You know, I, I talked about this in a sermon uh, a few weeks ago, Gary. You probably remember when I came back from Israel, Judy and I did, in January. That the thing that most struck me, people have asked, well, what was the great, best thing you saw? The thing that most struck me over there as we went from place to place, uh, probably the most impression that I had was all of the markers and many, uh, most of these sites or alleged sites, if they're real or not, we don't know of some of them, from every nation on earth, hundreds of languages of Lord's Prayer and uh, of um, the, the other things he, Jesus said at these different sites, that all the languages, and there's more of them being put up all the time, that, that all come to... To worship Jesus Christ. Now, I don't believe in shrines and things like that, but it was striking to me to see this collection. And you saw the people there from all over the world uh, that were there honoring Jesus Christ of all these different languages. 
And um, this is what the Tower of Babel was divided as. But here's the thing. Those people were uniting around the fact that Jesus Christ was the Lord. He'd been raised up from the dead. And so that's what Pentecost is about, Jerry. It's about the Feast of the Ingathering in the Old Testament, which was a figure or a prefiguring type of Christ gathering all the nations to himself. Now, a nation, make this point again, a nation is not, as we think in modern terms, of a nation state like Germany or the United States. The United States, according to the Bible definition of nation, is a nation of nations because there are all different ethnicities and tribes and groups of people, uh, languages, and we've all come together with one language for the most part in the United States. What's going to divide us again is when we start to have three or four languages that are the norm. But, and you know, think of that what you may, but language is divisive. But a nation is a tribe or a group. And so when God's, Christ says that he is calling that all nations or creatures come to him, he means all different kinds of people that live all over the world of every ethnicity and background all can come to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what Pentecost was about. Is it a 100% harvest? No, because in the, we can go out into the cornfields, wheat fields, and we can forcibly gather the grain. We can forcibly gather that grain up and bring it in, whether it wants to or not, obviously. But Christ is not going to go through the world and forcibly gather up the grain. Whosoever will may come, right? Well, and, and, and that's the this part. Is, this is not an unusual theme. This, is, this theme is throughout the Old Testament. That God will gather all people. I'm, I'm just—it's it's all throughout it. But I think the Jews pretty much missed it. Well, they? sometimes it's it's kind of in an apocalyptic language. And uh, let let me take one Isaiah 25. Let's start at verse six. Hang on now. I don't know where. Uh, Isaiah 25, verse six. And in this nation, the Lord of Hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And, you know, he, he, this is, this is basically, this is Isaiah referencing what's going on here. Uh, but it's, it's symbolic language. What's that feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines? What? What was all that? That was a uh, that was a basically a symbol for uh, blessings and good things that were going to happen. All of this was going to yes. come on. He says, "I'm going to destroy the covering cast over all nations, and the veil that is spread over all nations." That there's that separation of the nations again. He's going to destroy what's separating them. Right. And so through Christ, right. people of all different nationalities can be together. Right. And that, that's represented, for example, in this church that we have right here on Savona Boulevard. And, and people from many different countries and colors and shapes and sizes and original languages here in this church. Because, and what's the one thing that brings us together? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's basically, and basically this passage says the same thing in verse 8. He says, as a result of all this, he will swallow up death forever. What do you think that means, Mike? People are going to be saved. This is going to be the end yes. of death. Yes, and, and they're and, going to be saved through the gospel of Christ. J just like he was raised from the dead, Ed, we have that promise that he's the first fruits of our resurrection. Exactly. So that's the connection for Jerry the caller that of between Pentecost and I would connect it back to first fruits. These Old Testament feasts are not as well known as they ought to be, in my opinion. Uh, or, or the are the result or what how we became become a part or aware of or receive the benefit of the blood of Christ. Uh, I'm I'm going to go to Romans six for a second here, Mike. I think this is valuable to read right now. He says, "What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in newness of life. Right. Now, now the connection there is the death, and if you read the Bible carefully, death is associated with blood in this case. Right. Not dying of suffocation. Right. This is death by the shedding of blood, like a sacrifice that Christ sacrificed himself, or it was that was sacrificed as a lamb. And that blood, or his death, takes away the sins of the world. And there's the connection with the Passover, when Christ was crucified. And then the first fruits, and then, the, and then Pentecost. So, yes, Romans 6 brings those together. He's talking about a resurrection there and in Rome, but he's also talking about the death. He's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then the it death becomes a and type of our death, burial, burial and resurrection. And, Same and, thing in Ephesians chapter two. Right. And basically, what uh, what was said in Pentecost, he said, uh, "Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins." In Romans six five, he says, "For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that's the baptism, buried in the water. Right. Certainly, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection." So if we've, if we've been we've been connected with him in the likeness of his burial, we're going to be resurrected as he was resurrected. Right. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he, had, for he who has died has been freed from sin. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. I've probably mentioned this before on the air, but let me do it again since you're right here, Gary. There's another passage, interestingly enough, that really sheds a lot of light on this, too, that's not often talked about in this case. But it's Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Paul, uh, it's in the, I'm not trying to just rip this out of a context, but for sake of brevity, clarity, we'll begin reading in verse 19 of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 19, and, and, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and so forth. So here he says that, that toward us who believe, God has worked his mighty power because he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. Now then, when you go on down uh, in chapter 2, he says, And you being made alive, who were, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now he's going to parallel. He says, Christ died, was buried, raised up by the power of God, and seated, made to sit in the heavenly places. So several things happen. He died, was buried, raised up, made to sit in the heavenly places. Now then, when you look in chapter 2, he says, you were dead in your trespasses. But, but God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God not of works, and he should boast. Now, you've probably heard those last couple of verses lots of times. But did you know that they were connected with baptism? Yeah. That's the key to here. Because when you look at, oh, how, where do you see baptism? And then what you see, Christ died, was buried, raised up, made to sit. Then he says, you were dead in trespasses. You were dead in sins. You've been buried and raised up and made to sit in the heavenly places with Christ. He makes the exact parallel with us. Now let me ask you something in verse 6 there. What we, what's the raising up that occurs in verse 6? This is not the final resurrection of the dead, because this is a past event. These Ephesians, he says to them, this is something that's already occurred in the past, that God has already raised you up together and made you already to sit in the heavenly places. What, what are we raised up from? What, what do we die to and then are raised up from well he died to see Romans 6 is the answer Paul wrote that book too 
And he tells us that baptism is a burial and a resurrection in the likeness of Christ's death and resurrection. This is the same thing he's saying in Ephesians 1. It's in the likeness of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Now, he says in chapter 1 that God raised him up by his power, Christ up by his own power. But he says he raised us up by mercy, by love, and by grace have you been saved. So salvation by grace is connected to baptism. Baptism. Okay, in well, this case. To put it, because it's a work of God. It's what he does, not what you do. Well, to put it in a simpler way, one cannot be saved without God forgiving your sins. You, you, well, so you, yeah, the blood has to be take, put on your God, sins and forgive them. But who, Whereas, can, who can forgive sins but God? God is the only one that forgives sins. And, and basically, Mike, baptism, to put it simply, is the point in time when God forgives your sins. It's where you come in contact with the death of Christ. The bar- you're buried with Christ and raised up with Christ. It is the contact of the blood which forgives the sin, the death of Christ. That's the point he's making in Romans 6. And, and it's, it's, it's very simply said in Acts 22 and 16 when Ananias tells Paul, uh, he says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, I like I like to point out with that the reason I use Ephesians one is because it's so it's often taken as a proof text that we're saved by faith only, which it doesn't say at all. Right. But we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. That's the very passage when he's talking about this typology of death, burial, and resurrection, just like Christ. It's the same point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 6 when talking about baptism. So the raising up in Ephesians 2, 6, right before the salvation by grace, is what? Baptism. Okay? Oh, and, of course, it all starts off by those who believe in chapter uh, uh, in chapter 1. He talks about for those who believe, this is the truth. So you see it's all connected together. And... The, the important thing to remember as a Christian, or one of the things we want to get across since Jerry asked the question this morning, is that these Old Testament feasts were not just some oddities that God made up for no good reason. Not just some strange things. Uh, I've even heard them say, well, God made up these things just so he could teach us that we can't be saved by them. Now, that's not why God gave us the Feast of Pentecost and Passover, first fruits that he gave them to the Jews. He gave them to show them what was coming. They're an illustration. They show us the meaning of these things. And the Jews had to live this every year. They were every year they were living out Christ, the prophecies about Christ when they did these things. And so this is the evidence in particular, I would think, to those who are observant Jews, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these prophecies and even of the of the feast days. And I think we've had callers that have pointed this out before, that that the feast days are in themselves prophetic. And that's an important, interesting question, Jerry. I think a lot of people don't really get the Old Testament connections with these, with these, um, with the events of the life of Christ. Well, look at how it's. You know, I'm, I'm going to go to First Peter three and verse eighteen. Because it's also connected there with a statement that that people just don't seem to pay much attention to. He says in verse 18 of 1 Peter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. He says there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Yes. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All all that's bookended by the resurrection of Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. It's all bookended by his death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, and, and that's a, that's an important thing to, to remember about that, and that's why he can say baptism saves us in the same type of way or figure. 
Well, we have another caller on the line, Gary. Are uh, you there, Ken? Yeah, Mike. How you doing? Can't hear Ken. Uh, I can hear him. You can hear him. Hi, Mike. Don't tell me my ears have gone out again. Go ahead and take the question. Uh, go ahead, Ken. Well, I'm not getting him now. Something changed. Just want to make a couple comments. Uh, the uh, oh, Jewish priest yeah. here talked about. Not speak up a little bit if uh, you he, want. He's talking. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Ken. The Jewish priest you're talking about is called Chaba Oak, which means weeks. Um, it's uh, first. Um, oh, let me, let me say this. Uh, Moses received the Ten Commandments on this piece. Can you hear him? And if you look, if you look. It's, it's, I'm losing it too. Uh, Ken, can you? I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but can you start over because we're getting a lot of feedback. Start over a little bit, if you would. I got. Part I did of not it. hear okay. your question. At I all. got part the, of it. The Ten Commandments were given on Shavuot, which is the Feast of Week, which is famous Pentecost. Oh, it, it is, huh? I didn't well, realize. I was given. Where, where would I go in the Old Testament to figure no, out? The Feast of Weeks hadn't even been established when the Ten Commandments were given. Are you saying that at the same time of year? No, and 50 days, 50 days after Passover is when most became the Ten Commandments. Okay. All right. After the first and Passover. You, after it, the first Passover. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, in Exodus 24, verse 3. Let me look it up here. Now now it's coming back to me, what you're saying. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, Mo, it says, Moses came and told all the words of the Lord and the judgments. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord, which he has said, we will do. And so forth. So, okay. This is... This is this is the people of Israel agreeing to the marriage covenant. Right. They're saying do here. Yes. And Pentecost to the Christians is saying I do to the new covenant. The new marriage covenant. Yes. It's it's a kind of a one way covenant. God lays out the terms you either accept or reject it. There's not a lot of negotiation going on, but this is where they did that, and that's why God held them accountable later because they agreed to this and then they didn't keep it. And that's why perhaps, I don't know what you think about this, the Bible says judgment will begin at the house of God in the new covenant when people and the end of those who fall away is worse than the beginning because they've agreed to something with God and then they've turned their back on it. And, uh, now, one thing, you, one thing you might find interesting is in all Jewish synagogues, the book of Ruth is read on Pentecost. Book of, book of Luke? Ruth, I think. Ruth, okay. Ruth. I didn't think it was Luke. Ruth, yes. Because it's a harvest day, harvesting and, going on. Right, well, Ruth was a Gentile. And after a day, King David. Hmm. So, yeah, it is interesting that those Gentiles are all throughout the all throughout the uh, Old Testament in certain ways, especially in the in the lineage of Christ. There's a couple of those that God, God always intended to save all the nations, and the Book of right. Ruth is. A book about that harvest, and of course, she's the descendant of Christ. Yeah. Or ancestor of Christ, I should say, not descendant, ancestor of Christ. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, go ahead. Uh, uh, it's one tradition for uh, Jews on on uh, Pentecost is to wear white. Like they're going to a wedding. 
to wear white like they're going to a wedding. So they view this as a marriage, the as a feast of yeah. did, when the, when this did the uh, Jews of the Old Testament in Europe opinion or reading Ken did they view the uh, did they view the feast of Pentecost as a just a harvest festival for which they were thankful or did they view it in some prophetic messianic sense no they celebrated as giving of the law the giving of the law that's what it was celebrated for okay that makes sense Pentecost was the give and so you could even parallel that and say well the uh, new new law of Christ began at Pentecost when the apostles stood up and the Holy Spirit spoke and revealed the beginning of Christ's kingdom and his judgment uh, through the apostles. Yeah. We see the Holy Spirit. Yeah, through the Holy Spirit, that's right. Yes. And Which the Jews didn't have. Not the same way, that's for sure, that's right. Not not in that way at all. Yeah, okay, I see that now. I didn't know that part of it. Uh, to most Christians, Pentecost is a mystery, complete mystery. Uh, I'm sure that I grew up just thinking it was just a one of those odd holidays that somebody had named, which I didn't really understand because the connections had never been made to me. It wasn't until much later that I began to make those connections and so forth. And uh, the uh, yeah, apparently that that is the idea of the Torah being given that is connected to the connected to the fifty days. And, but on the other hand, people don't know enough Latin to know that penta means 50. Well, a pentagram. <laughs> how many corners does a pentagram have? Five. Right. Yeah, right. So uh, that that's the kind of number, you know, that's where all my years of studying Latin, Gary, pay off for you. Just know those ridiculous Latin prefixes, suffixes. Uh, I spent a lot of time in junior high and high school conjugating and declining Latin nouns and verbs. I don't know if it's a good good use of my time or not in school <clears throat> but anyway I appreciate your call do you have anything else you want to add to this um, no that's it I guess okay thank you very much for calling we appreciate it and if I remember correctly I think you brought some of this up last week or Ken did last week and uh, we talked a little bit about it I, ironically I had prepared some lessons on this before all this uh, virus stuff hit I started some lessons on the first day of the week, which ha I, this is why do Christians keep the first day of the week and not the Sabbath day? And that started kind of turned into a series of lessons. I did I interrupted them because of the virus, and we talked more about those kind of more uh, pertinent issues the last couple of weeks. But today I tend to get back to that. So I've just been studying these things, ironically enough, at this time of year which didn't really dawn on me because we don't keep a church year calendar here. There's nothing in the New Testament about us keeping the church year like the Jews did. Those festivals and yet year, those yearly things have been fulfilled in Christ. Philip Schaff, the greatest church historian, is very clear about this, that there's no trace of yearly festivals in the, in the church. In the, in the first, century Testament, church. first century church. That's something that came along much later as... The Catholic Church began to adopt Jewish principles and a Jewish priesthood and a more formal type of liturgy based on the Old Testament uh, pattern of priesthood and temple and all cathedral and holy places and holy water and incense. They began to adopt the, the priestly mitres and robes. They began to adopt all this stuff from the Old Testament uh, hundreds of years later. Then the church year comes in, keeping these church festivals like the Jews did. But in the New Testament church, there was none of that kind of stuff. So it doesn't, since we try to follow the New Testament church and not the, old, the Catholic traditions or even Protestant traditions, I've never kept these yearly holidays that, that uh, are so prominent in much of what's called Christianity. Not New Testament Christianity, but what's called Christianity. Uh, and so, therefore, it escapes me sometimes that we're approaching Easter or Pentecost or whatever the case may be. It doesn't really dawn on me. And you can say that's a fault, but okay, whatever. 
I can tell all I can tell you well, is why that is. It probably doesn't you either, does it, Gary? Well, it, our it, lives aren't patterned after that Old Testament pattern of keeping festivals. Right, but we begin to see that, particularly in Old Testament prophecy, you know that passage I read from Isaiah 25 that reflected what was going to happen, how all these things become related. Uh, I, I'm I'm more and more impressed as I study more and more as how interrelated all the passages in the New and Old Testament are. What did we go through to show the principles that we just spoke of in terms of basically the relationship of, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to our forgiveness of sins? How many passages did we go through? We probably went through a, nearly a dozen. And it took and all that's of not, that's not even all of them. And that's I not mean, all of them. But what did it take, Mike? It took those for us to get a full understanding of the significance and the reason for that. You don't get the full understanding from just one or two passages. And and I've, so many times I've seen people who basically base their beliefs and their doctrinal beliefs on perhaps just one passage. That that Ephesians 2 passage is just sure. an example of that. just gets bumped to the top of the hierarchy, and no other passage, and everything else gets interpreted by that, wrongly so. And I'm trying to show you by going through that analysis, I know it sounds complicated on the radio, I can probably illustrate it better with a chart, but I'm trying to show you that in the very context that people use to say that baptism has nothing to do with salvation, it's right there it's right in the there. middle of that context. You just okay? you have to look you just for have it. To see, you have to see, what the, make, write out the parallel that he's using and say, what does this mean? And then when you, look, when you do compare it to Romans chapter 6, you see how clear it is if you want to see it, or you can dismiss it all by saying, oh, no, we're, everybody knows we're saved by faith only. You can just dismiss it all with a wave of the hand and, and um, but then so you, forth. But then you probably have to deal with James 2, where James says you're not saved by faith alone. Well, yes, of course. They, you know, there's, all, there's, all, Gary, so, there's always an answer to everything. The question is, is it a good answer? Well, the question right. is, is it a good? Is it the right answer? The the point is, these passages need to be reconciled. If we if we understand them to be opposed to each other, we're misunderstanding what God has yeah. for us. That that's the point. Well, I've seen some of these uh, Protestant preachers uh, dismiss the entire Old Testament, especially ones who believe in faith only, Calvinism, or other faith only people. Dismiss the entire Old Testament by saying, see, the all, only point of the Old Testament is that law can't save you, and it just shows you that God did all these things to show to them that it was all a waste of time. Now, that's just simply not true. The Bible itself is very clear that there was a much greater purpose to the Old Testament commandments than just to say commandments aren't any good. And of course, then they give a command that you can't obey commandments. Only their commandments. So, so they can't. You just can't wave away the Old Testament and and make it nothing because of of, of Ephesians two eight and eight and nine. It, it, that's not proper Bible interpretation, and it leads you to very bad, very bad consequences. Or one of the worst ones, John three sixteen. Oh yes, that becomes that becomes that becomes the standard that they use. Yes, and and it's like one here the. Uh, John texted in, Luther wanted James, the book of James, thrown out. Yes, he called it a right, strawy epistle. Strawy meaning worthless, whereas Romans was silver and gold. Because he didn't like what James said about faith only. And so he wanted the whole thing thrown out uh, of, the, of the canon because of that. Well, well, you, you that's, talk- that, that doesn't cause me to... Re- uh, Martin Luther was a man, a great scholar, but... That is certainly something I can't defend. That's the wrong approach to Bible study altogether. Well, even in even in Ephesians, I mean, within Ephesians that Paul wrote, take a look at Ephesians 5, what's said there in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, what's that? Yeah. Well, how do you explain that? What does sanctify mean? What, when he says that he might sanctify her and cleanse her, 
What what sanctify imply? What what do we usually associate with sanctification? A cleansing of some sort. Or a setting apart for God. We're saved. God's setting us apart for Him. He's saving us. That's what's associated with the word. Sanctify. When when you look at it, sanctify means basically He's going to deliver you from from the wrath of the judgment. And they separate justification and sanctification. But 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 basically, when you look at it, that's what it's talking about here. Look at uh, Titus 3. He says it again. He says, uh, But then the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What's the washing of regeneration? That's that new person. That, but that new person is created through our obedience to the gospel. We, we become a new creature. That's how it, we become something that God has reconciled us to him that through that become, action. That action starts with the death and burial, burial and resurrection, resurrection of Christ. And, become new. and our, Just like Christ became new when he was dead, died. And, and, and us up. being buried with him will also be we, raised After with baptism, him. it says what? We walk in a newness of, of life. life. After baptism, not before, after baptism. Okay, but... but Ephesians 5, 26 and following, and Titus 3, 5 and following, all of these things are, are pointing back to the same thing. Right. And it takes those passages to understand what he's talking about. Well, this just goes back to the point that we've made many times. You can't go into the Bible with a system in your mind already preset. You have to do a plain reading of the Scriptures, not a theological, philosophical mm-hmm. reading of... Uh, but, but one that is, are based on a system, systematic theology, but simply based on taking the Bible for what it says and letting the authors uh, through the Holy Spirit speak for themselves, then you put things together that way. But when you take a presupposition that Martin Luther, John Calvin, people like that started with, or even the popes, and you place that over the top of the Bible, now then becomes... It becomes a mess. Well, in, you have in, to throw Bible verses out that talk about free will and the God Christ died for everyone, and all that stuff has to be explained away then, because you simply won't let the Bible speak for itself. You've got a system you're going to impose upon it. Well, what it amounts to in general, any agenda is going to keep you from the truth of the Bible. Yes, that's it's as simple as that. And, I, I, you know, we can go back, uh, we're back on the same subject again, Gary, of what's the agenda of those who believe in uh, in the fact that man, they say that man has no free will or that that, uh, <clears throat> that we, we can't make any choice for ourselves. God has to do it all for us. We're saved by faith only. It's all on God's part, not our part. There, there's an agenda at work there in protecting themselves from guilt, from true guilt, or from responsibility. They want God to either be to be responsible for all of it and to do all of it for us. God doesn't do that. Let the Bible speak for itself. And there's far too much of the Bible. I mean, most of the Bible basically uh, puts the responsibility on man to obey God, to do something about his lost condition. Yes, it makes man a lost creature. But then it says, save yourselves. I read the verse this morning already. Yeah, save, save yourselves, yourselves from, from this, this perverse generation. generation. And what what was the context of that? Repenting and being baptized in the mission of their sins. That was the immediate context of that. There's more to it than that. That was the immediate context. The how, very kind of thing that people today say isn't necessary and won't save you. The Bible's clear about what it says. How in the world can Peter say save yourselves if it's if it's God does everything do, and you don't have any choice? Or, or that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. How can that happen how can those things be true? It isn't a matter of trying to uh, uh, make man important. It's, a, it's God has made man important by requiring man to take responsibility for his own actions and to do something about it. God provides the means for us to do something about it. He provides the motivation. He provides the sacrifice. But in the end, we have to we have to sacri- we have to do something ourselves for it. Now, so this goes back to all of this, and so the feast of Pentecost and the feast of first fruits and, and the Passover all are linked together 
And I guess in much of the religious world today, Christian religious world, they're, they're being talked about and celebrated to some degree because it's that time of year. But we New Testament Christians remember this kind of thing every first day of the week because all these things happen on the first day of the week. The resurrection, the first fruits, and Pentecost. What day do they all happen? First day of the week. Okay? That's when they happen. And so when Christ says, when it says in Acts 20 and 7 that the disciples were, were gathered together on the first day of the week, we know why. Because that's the day that God said, let there be light, and that's the day that Christians keep. And the interesting thing about that word in Acts 20 and 7, when the first day of the week had come, the disciples were gathered. In the Greek, it doesn't appear so in English here. And I know just enough Greek to be dangerous, but I'm pretty sure about this, that the word gathered there is a passive word. It doesn't say they gathered themselves together. That would be a whole different grammatical construction in Greek. They were gathered by something. You see a pile of stones out in the field. You say, uh, those were gathered up last year. Were gathered. The stones didn't gather themselves. They were gathered. And that's the exact meaning of this, of that phrase there in Acts 20 and 7. Well, what gathered the disciples together on the first day of the week? What was it that they were passive toward that gathered them together. It was the command of the Lord and the example of these things we're talking about that gathered them on the first day of the week to break bread or to keep the Lord's Supper. Okay? That's why they were gathered together. It isn't, doesn't say that's why they gathered themselves together. So this morning, if there's going to be a gathering, I'm being gathered together by the command of the Lord. Well, uh, not end, just this morning. I'm talking about in general in my life. That, that's what that that's what it is. Christians are gathered in a passive sense. Well, basically, the entire group is being gathered in that sense. Yes. And and so we're we individually we act, but basically it's acted from something else. The other the other idea that may go with this in a more general sense, Gary, along with that, is that Christians are called by God. God does the calling. We have to do the responding. The only reason that you and I even know each other, Gary, even though we're very close, even though we even know each other, is because God called us, and we were called, we were called passively on our part by something else, by the gospel, he says. Right. First Thessalonians. We were called, and now we're together, you see. Because we heard the voice of the Lord. Some people are called, but then they don't respond. So there's no connection that's ever made. Well, that, that, response, no again, that response again comes to what did he say? Basically, uh, the grace that saves us is a free gift of God. Right. How, how do you get the benefit of a gift? You have to reach out and take you it. You have to take you, it. You cannot you, receive a gift unless you take, take it. it. Right. You know, often, often... That's true of a pardon, and the governor issues a pardon. People have turned down pardons from the governor. Uh, they turned them down. They have to. They have to actually reach out. So when God offers a pardon through the blood of Christ, in my belief, I've got to reach out and take that. Well, basically, I was given a Christmas gift one time by my grandmother, and I had to not only reach out and take the gift, but I had to unwrap it. I had to read the instructions. I had to put it together, and I had to learn how to use it before I got the benefit of that right. gift. It's like getting a new car on the Price is Right. Yeah. Well, reach out and pay taxes then you well, can get your gift <laughs> yeah i was i was eight years old and she gave me a uh, a u control line model airplane complete oh, with wow. all the all the the so engine started the kit. This beast of the aircraft yeah, yeah right. so anyway but you i had but i had i spent you had i spent three months building it <laughs> <laughs> quite a gift huh yeah well our time is about gone we really appreciate the callers you've had today and hope that you've enjoyed to learn something from the show today as we considered this these connection with the feasts in the Old Testament and this time of year. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'd like to invite you to take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. Some of us are meeting on the first day of the week here, but we're not meeting on Sunday night or Wednesday night now for the time being, and be a rather limited gathering 
spread apart in our assembly. People aren't touching each other or the communion, but we're having assembly today. But we're glad, glad to have you come and join us when it's possible to do to do that at 2196 South Bessadona Boulevard. So until next week, may God bless all of you and thank you for listening.